name is Tim Harris, pastor here at Woodburn Baptist Church. If you're in cafe, if you're joining us by audio or video podcast, um, it is great to have you be a part of this particular message. We're in the middle of a series entitled Life on Mission. We're going through the book of Acts together. And today we are in Acts chapter 17. We're going to start in verse 16 there. My buddy Andrew Cause, he turned me on to a new app for my iPhone. Uh, it's, it's a navigation app. Uh, honestly, I don't really go that many places. I don't know why I, I feel like I, I really need a navigation app, but I, I really like navigation apps. And this one is called Waze, and, and it's really pretty amazing. I've never seen anything like the app Waze. So if I'm going to Nashville or Louisville, the other day I was going to Louisville, I went ahead and let Waze guide me there for the most part because this is the smartest app I've ever seen. No kidding. One day I was going to Butler County. <laughs> Y'all know Butler County? Uh, this is true, you guys. I was going to Butler County to speak at FCA there, and on the way to Butler County, the Waze app told me roadkill ahead. Yeah, welcome to Butler County. Roadkill, roadkill. The app knew that there was a dead animal in the road. I, I just personally think that's awesome. I don't know how it knows. I don't know what else it knows uh, about all of us. But roadkill was a pretty amazing warning. It, it knows potholes. It'll say pothole ahead. I, I just, I'm, I'm all into this. And it knows the traffic. So this is the advantage for me. Anywhere I go, and I live in Woodburn, y'all, but if I come out of my driveway, I, I get stuck in traffic. I, I can't explain it. Nashville, Louisville, I always get hung up. And I like an app that gives me the alternate routes. Uh, Waze will actually tell me when I need to leave the house, factoring in real-time traffic. You, you need to be leaving by, you know, 823, in order to arrive at Louisville by, you know, it's just pretty amazing. So I had a meeting in Louisville this past week, so I was using Waze to get me there just in case. I knew exactly where I was going, but just in case there was a traffic, you know, issue or roadkill or a pothole, I just wanted to be warned. So I I turned the app on. It's pretty amazing. And there actually was traffic that day. So it started taking me this different route. So I was pretty excited. I'm not that good at coming up with an alternate route. So I was excited that it was guiding me. So it, it drove me around a while, and it was sunny, and it was beautiful, and I was right on time. And, and it, you know, I was getting closer and closer. I was coming in a new way. I didn't really know where I was, but I was confident that Waze knew where I was because, you know, it knew the, you know, roadkill. And so all of a sudden it said, you know, make a right turn. And then she said, you have arrived. And I looked. And no, I had not. I mean, no, I, I'm not there. And now since you've turned me around, I've been driving you know, in a way I didn't know. I have no idea where I am. But, but here's the app going, you have arrived. No, no, no. So now this is a crisis, you guys. I mean, it was a lovely ride. Thank you for the warning about the pothole, but I am not where I wanted to be. Did you understand? that I was not there, not at the KBC. I had not arrived. What is to talk about? evangelism, about sharing the good news. And one of the difficulties in preaching the gospel in our culture, in our context, is that there is this predominant philosophy. Most people these days just simply believe that no matter what way you choose, it's going to be right for you, that you have somehow this freedom to choose your own truth, and that whatever road you choose, as long as you are sincere 
If you're sincere, somehow that road's going to lead you to God. It's going to lead you to heaven. So in other words, there's no need to preach your way, your religion, your doctors. No need to preach that because just leave people alone. As long as they find their own path and as long as they're sincere, they'll wind up, you know, at peace with God. Well, I'm telling you, I sincerely wanted to be at the KBC the other day, but I sincerely was misled. It is not true that one map is as good as another. It is not true that one set of directions is as good as another set of directions. The directions have to get me to my destination. You understand? There has to be truth involved. And it is not true that all worldviews, that all religions lead to the same place. They, they don't. That is a philosophy. That is an opinion. That is a statement made out of ignorance. You apparently haven't studied world religions if you think they all lead to the same place. They don't. They don't, they don't even claim to. Understand? So we do have this privilege, this obligation to preach Jesus who is alone the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody gets to God except through him. This is what scripture teaches us. This is the gospel that we believe and proclaim. But I admit, it's getting harder and harder to preach that kind of message in the world in which we live. But if you think that that's new, then you haven't read the book of Acts. Acts chapter 17 is where we will be. This is actually Paul's first sermon to the Gentiles that we have here. He's been preaching to Jewish audiences, to, 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 the, uh, to, to the Jews spread out all across the, the, the land. That He would go to synagogues, preach. We've heard Peter's sermon at Pentecost. We've heard these sermons to Jews. But this this is a really good example of a, of a new kind of sermon. This is Paul stepping out, and now he's preaching to the Greeks, and he preaches differently when he's talking to a different audience. He's speaking now to a pagan audience who has no preparation for hearing the gospel, and it's amazing, amazing how he comes about preaching. Acts chapter 17, verse 16. Read with me. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens... He was deeply troubled by all the idols he saw everywhere in the city. He went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and he spoke daily in the public square to all who happened to be there. He also had a debate with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. And when he told them about Jesus and his resurrection, they said, what's this babbler trying to say with these strange ideas he's picked up? Others said, he seems to be preaching about some foreign gods. So they took him to the high council of the city, the, the Areopagus. Come and tell us about this new teaching, they said. You are saying some rather strange things and we want to know what it's all about. It should be explained that all the Athenians as well as the foreigners in Athens seem to spend all their time, their leisure, discussing new ideas. So Paul, standing before the council, addressed them as follows, men of Athens. I noticed that you're very religious in every way. For as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines. And one of your altars had this inscription on it, to an unknown God. This God whom you worship without knowing is the one I'm telling you about. That, that is so amazing. That is so cool. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples. And human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. 
He himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. From one blood, he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he is not far away from any of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times, but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he approved to everyone this by raising him from the dead. When they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, some laughed in contempt. But others said, we want to hear more about this later. That ended Paul's discussion with them. But, but some joined him and became believers. Among them were Dionysius, a member of the council, a woman named Damaris and, and others with them. Okay, we have one guiding principle that's taking us through the book of Acts, and it's simply this. To have what they had, we're going to what? Do what they did. We must do what they did. So what is it that Paul did? Well, generally speaking, he, he told people about Jesus. He, he preached Jesus. Now, some of you think, well, but he was a missionary. Pastor Tim, he was, a, he was a preacher. He was a missionary. Now, you don't understand. Missionaries haven't been invented yet. I guess Paul's like the first one. Understand? But, but he hasn't set himself out to model a ministry after someone else or something he has seen. This is just Paul. This is his nature. Remember, before he came to Christ, he was traveling. He was uh, motivated by his zeal for his faith. And he was very, very interested in the Christian movement, the Christian church. But his interest back in those days was to shrink it. But, but now Christ got a hold of him. He, he had this encounter with the living, risen, powerful Jesus Christ. And from that point on, Paul pretty much stayed the same. He still traveled and he still was very, very zealous for his faith. But now, instead of wanting to shrink the Christian church, he wants to grow it, multiply it. All he can do now is, is tell people about Jesus. He tells people about Jesus. Now notice, in all of the examples we have of evangelism, all through the book of Acts, nobody ever just invites somebody to church. You know, Paul could have just stepped up there at the Areopagus and just invited all of those philosophers to church. But he does not do that. Now for us, often... Inviting people to church has become what we consider evangelism because we consider that easy. You feel like you'll look a little bit less weird maybe if you go to work and talk about church as opposed if you go to work and talk about Jesus. But let me just let you in on a secret. The people at work think you're just as weird for going to church as for loving Jesus. You're just already weird. You understand? They don't understand that and they don't necessarily understand church. They don't know why you would come, why you'd get up early on a perfectly good Sunday and come to church. The world doesn't get church. They don't understand church. And, and, and for that matter, understand, the, the message that we have to proclaim is not that we have a great church, although I think we do. 
But that is not the message we're sent out to proclaim, that we have a great church. We are meant to proclaim that we have a great Savior, and His name is, is Jesus. So, so I'm telling you, those of you who think that inviting people to church is easier, or maybe you're going to get a, a little better response, I'm not so sure. Because I'm not sure that people who don't know Jesus would ever understand church in the first place. It's Jesus that they need to know. It's Jesus that will change their lives. And once they know Jesus, then they may look at the body of Christ a little bit differently. But until they know Jesus, I just think church is going to be weird to them. I don't know that inviting people to church is necessarily going to do what you think it's going to do. Although I know that that's what some of us do. I invite people to church too. But it's Jesus that they need. It's Jesus that they need. And if we're going to have what they had, then we need to do what they do and understand what Paul did was tell people about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Now, notice how it begins. While Paul was waiting for them, waiting for Silas and Timothy, while he's waiting for them in Athens, he's deeply troubled. The Greek word there is is pained in the spirit. It has to do with cutting. So in other words, He's just looking around this, this city, this pagan city, and, and it, it, it pains his heart. It, it breaks his heart. It, it's this strange word that mixes up pain and, and anger. But, but the point is, Paul is deeply moved by the city. Now, he hasn't really talked to a soul yet, and he hasn't even begun to share Jesus yet. But understand, before he does any of that, Paul looks, and he takes a a, a long, hard look at the city, and it breaks his heart. It it, it pains his spirit. It just breaks him. It sort of reminds me of when Jesus was looking over the city of Jerusalem. Do you remember? And and Jesus wept for this city. It's something about just seeing all of these people like sheep without a shepherd, according to the Scripture. Well, see, understand that this happens to Paul. He he looks first at the city, and and something happens, something moves in him. He he develops this burden. So I would say this, if you want to have what Paul had and do what he did, you need to start the way he started. He starts with a burden. He, He really cares. As a matter of fact, he can't not care. He can't turn that part of his heart off. He, he really has this broken heart, this, this righteous anger for the lostness of the city. I would just simply say that, that, that the primary reason, that the real reason that most believers don't take Jesus to the world is that they really don't believe that the world needs Jesus. I'm talking to y'all. The, 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 the most of you who really never talk about Jesus wherever you go, deep down inside, you just don't think anybody needs Jesus. If you did, you'd tell them, wouldn't you? We're lacking this burden. We don't start from this place of, of, of burden. And I think this is what's broken. This is what is profoundly wrong with us as, as believers. We don't look at a lost world, and, and, and it doesn't bother us that people are struggling. It doesn't bother us that people are lost and empty and condemned. It really doesn't bother us. Not one bit. I, I guess for us, you know, we're not the ones going to hell, so we really don't have a problem with the fact that there's a lost and dying world out there. I mean, how else do you explain the fact that we don't tell? I mean, how much do you have to not care about people to simply never, ever tell them the, the, the words of life, the way of salvation? We just simply have no burden. We have no concern. 
I think this is where it begins. We need to just pray and get on our faces and beg that our hearts could be broken for the things that break the heart of God. We need to pray that we will have eyes to see people in their lostness and in their confusion and in their hunger for Christ. We need to have eyes to see that and hearts that feel that. Paul starts with a a burden, a, a great burden for people. We don't have that burden. Then notice, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply troubled by all the idols he saw everywhere in the city. He went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and he spoke daily in the public square to all who happened to be there. Understand, this is Paul's practice. If you read through the book of Acts, you'll see that he sort of has this evangelistic strategy, and it is always to the Jew first. To the Jew first. Whatever city he goes to, even in Athens... He's going to go to the synagogue first. He's going to find the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles who were already there at the synagogue, and he's going to preach Jesus to them first. Now, somebody tell me, what's the strategy? What is the wisdom? What's the thinking about going to the Jews first? Paul is a Jew. So these are his people. It's his tribe. The Jews are those with whom Paul identifies most closely and the ones who are going to identify with him. So the Jews are his people. The Jews are his tribe. He identifies. He's familiar. He's comfortable. They speak the same language spiritually and in every other way. What else about the Jews would make them perhaps your first stop if you're going to share the gospel in your Paul? Yeah, well, they are the ones most prepared to understand what he's there for because they know something of God. They have the Old Testament. They have the promises of everything that God had said he would do through the Messiah. They have that knowledge of, of what God was going to do to save the world through the, through the Israel, Israelite nation and, and, and through his Messiah. And now Paul can go straight to the Jews and tell them who Jesus is. He is your Messiah. He is the fulfillment of all of the promises in your scripture. You understand? So Paul starts first with his own people. He starts with the ones closest to him. He starts with the one with with some preparation for understanding the gospel. Now, if we're going to do what Paul did, then understand, I think what we learn here is that we start with the ones closest to us. Start with the ones closest to you. That's what I thought you'd say. They're hard, aren't they? You know, if, if I just like threw a dart at a, at a map and picked out some nation in the world that you'd never heard of, but we were going to get a mission trip together to go, some of you, you'd sign up. You'd go wherever. You'd go to Antarctica. You'd, you'd go to Mumbai. You'd go to wherever I could name them. I mean, you'd be there. You'd pack your suitcase. You'd, you'd spend money. But if I said, you know that idiot brother-in-law of yours, would you just go to, you know, you're like, no, no. No, can I not just go to Africa? I mean, you know, my family? You know, please, no, you know, not Logan County. No, no, you know. 77% in a recent survey, 77% of new believers, 77% of the most recent believers in the United States, they came to know Jesus because of the consistent, unembarrassed, relationship they, that they had with a Christian in their family or a close friend. 77% of people who come to Jesus most recently 
They came to Jesus because of the witness of a family member who was not ashamed, not embarrassed, and consistent, or a friend. So, this is still how you do it. Most people who get saved get saved because somebody like you shares Jesus with a friend, with a family member. This is how most people still get saved, and it's how God's still saving people. You start with the ones closest to you. But that's hard for, for this little principle I would say here. This isn't very beautifully stated, but, but I'd say this is sort of a little principle here. Uh, life before lip. They need to see you loving Jesus with your life before you start telling them with your lip how much you love Jesus. Because I'm telling you, Probably one of the reasons most people don't come to Jesus is because of the vast number of really bad Christians out there, to be honest. I mean, there are all kinds of Christians, but let's just be honest enough to say there's some bad Christians out there. They may belong to Jesus, but they give Jesus a bad name by the way they talk, by the way they live, by the hatred, by the prejudice, by the judgmental attitudes, by the legalism. I mean, you just, you just say it. I mean, there's some bad Christians and and the life that you live in front of these closest to you, that, that really is a powerful part of your witness. And I think that's why a lot of us really shy away. Because deep down inside, we know that we don't have a lot of integrity. Our friends already have heard us talk. Our friends have already been drunk with us. I mean, our friends know that we are somehow not really all that serious about Jesus. Because if we were more serious about Jesus, our, our lives would be different. Life, life before live. So Paul goes to Athens and he looks across the city and he sees all the idols. Now, now I'm an art history major, so I've studied all of these idols. We called them art. But all of the art that filled the ancient city of Athens, that these were gods and goddesses, most all of them knew to understand. There's a particular kind of sculpture called a herm that we know was throughout the marketplace, throughout the market. I mean, throughout the market in, in Athens. And it was a really sexually perverse kind of marker, but it was everywhere. So here's Paul in this hypersexualized pagan culture, and his heart breaks. And he longs to share Jesus with these people, but, 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 but how do you even begin? And then he notices in the midst of all of these idols, all of these pagan temples, that there's this empty altar. And they did this. We know that they did this. This is historical. Paul would have seen in Athens at this time these empty altars with an inscription that just said, to an unknown God. The Athenians, the, the Greeks, they had a, a pantheon of gods, that they had multiple gods. It's what we call polytheism, multiple gods. And so they were so obsessed with making sure they didn't leave one out that they just had this empty altar that said, to the God we don't know yet. So Paul walks in. And notice how he speaks their language. He doesn't go in to the Greek Areopagus quoting the Old Testament. He doesn't quote a single verse of the Bible. And I know that some of you, you're surprised or bothered by that. But the Bible doesn't have any authority with the Greek philosophers. You understand that? It just doesn't. He could quote the Bible all day long, but it's not going to mean anything to them. It's just true. It's not going to mean anything to them. He doesn't quote the Bible. He talks about Jesus, but he doesn't even say Jesus' name. Do you notice that? He just calls Jesus 
the man. It's interesting, if you know Jesus, then you know exactly what he's talking about. If you know the Old Testament, you know how he's making connections. But this is almost what I'd call pre-evangelism. He's just sort of building a bridge to these people so that he can get a hearing. So he literally quotes their own poets and philosophers. Paul knows this culture. Somehow, out of nowhere, Paul is quoting Greek poets and philosophers. Who knew that he knew how to speak that language, but he does. And he doesn't come in there saying, I'll tell you one thing, this marketplace of yours, I've never seen so much filth. I've never seen so much pornography. You're the most pagan, godless people I've ever seen. I mean, that's how some of you would preach, man. You go in there wagging your finger, tell them how they're all going to hell. But Paul says, you know one thing I notice around you people? You're very religious. Kind of depends on your definition of religious, you, you, you know, but... But he builds this bridge, you're very religious. Wow, I've never seen a culture so obsessed with gods and goddesses. You're very religious. And and I noticed that you have this altar throughout your city. It's this empty altar that says to an unknown God, this God that you worship, but you don't know who he is. Let me tell you about him. Y'all, that's good. That's good preaching. That's really, really good. Does our culture have any empty altars like that? If you looked at our culture, your neighborhood, Bowling Green, Warren County, Kentucky, United States, if you just watch television, you ever see any signs that our culture is reaching out for this God that they don't know? There's a man named Patrick Lawler who is a construction worker who got a toothache. Really bad toothache and a little bit of blurry vision, but he would eat ice cream, which was probably just a good excuse. He'd eat ice cream, kind of put cold uh, against his face to try to make the pain go away. But the toothache was bad all, kind of all weekend. So his wife worked at a dentist office. So on Monday, she made him go in to get an x-ray, just take a look at, at what's going on with his tooth. It wasn't a toothache, y'all. There was a four-inch nail in his head. A four-inch nail that went in through his mouth, up through his gum, and into his brain. It barely missed his right eye. Now, when they saw this, they're like, what? I mean, how could you have a four-inch nail in your head, in your brain, up through your mouth, and not know it? I mean, how would you bite down on that? Well, he didn't bite down on it. He's a construction worker, and apparently Thursday or Friday, his gun had backfired, and he knew that nail went somewhere. You know, it just shot up into his mouth, but it shot so quickly. He didn't even know it. He didn't feel it at the time. All that he knew is, you know, just this, you know, this toothache, this tooth's hurting and a little bit of blurry vision. He really didn't need an x-ray. What he needed was a four-hour surgery to remove the nail. And this is what I'm saying. Our culture doesn't really understand the the desperate need that it has for Christ. It doesn't understand that. But our culture, the people you know, they still will complain of of spiritual toothache. You, You understand? There's this numb awareness that something in life is missing. And you and I can answer that for them if we will. Now, I'm 51. I've been through every kind of evangelism and witness training that the church has ever offered. But, but I will say this, and some of you will disagree, but let's just go out there and test the theories and see what works. But 
I was always taught that when you want to witness to somebody like a neighbor or, or, or anybody at all, that you start with sin. You start with for all have sinned and falling short of the glory of God. Everybody's a sinner. And I think probably 30 years ago in our culture that would have worked because everybody had a Christian grandma or somebody who, who had taught them about Jesus. People used to have more Bible background or some sort of awareness or connection to a Christian. But you've got to understand, our culture now, there are a lot of people who don't even know a Christian. They don't know a, a real Christian in their lives. They don't hear about Jesus, and they don't feel any guilt for sins. They don't think they're sinners, now, I agree with you that they need to understand their sins so that they will understand their need for a Savior. But I'm just saying, if you start there these days, I don't know how many people will listen to you. They don't think that they're sinners. I mean, get out and talk to real people, y'all. They don't feel guilt for anything anymore. I mean, are you not paying attention? Not only that, in a recent study of moral issues in the United States, do you not understand that looking at pornography and actual adultery was somewhere below the risk, the list of bad things? It was down the list somewhere under failing to recycle. In our culture, one of the worst sins would be not recycling, but you can look at pornography all day. You understand? You can cheat on your spouse because people do that, but you better not put a, an aluminum can in the garbage. That's strange. That there's sort of this upside-down morality now. And if you think that people are feeling guilty, they're not feeling guilty. So if we're looking for signs of, 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 of what they need, if you're looking for the spiritual toothache, I don't know that it's going to be struggling with their sin. I don't think they're struggling with their sin. Maybe it's just me. That doesn't mean they don't need to hear about Jesus. And it doesn't mean they're not asking questions. It just may not be the sin question that they're asking. But, but, but here's what I want you to understand. Before you give the answer, you need to listen to the question. See, we've been going out for way too long just screaming at people that Jesus is the answer. And Jesus is the answer. But the problem is they're not going to believe us. They don't believe that we know the answer because we don't seem to know what the questions are. We're out there answering questions nobody's asking, and we're not listening to the questions they are asking. If you want to have what Paul had, do what Paul did. And Paul paid enough attention to the culture. He listened to the people that he was going to preach to before he started preaching. So that when he walked into that Areopagus, walked into that council of, of, of Greece, he was able to put his finger exactly on the place of their need. The question they're asking, who is this God that we don't know? For all of their gods and goddesses, for all of their religion, for all of their worship, they still had this dull knowing at their hearts that said there must be more. There must be a God we don't know. There must be a God who lives beyond the sky. Paul listened to their question first so that when he gives the answer, it's, it's an answer right on target. I'm just saying, y'all, before you go out to the world giving them all the answers, why don't you listen for the questions? You want to win your idiot brother-in-law to Christ? I think you start by listening to him. Listen to him. Listen to the questions he's actually asking before you start giving him all your answers. 
Brother Tim, I don't know. I don't know if people, and I don't know if my neighbors are asking any questions at all. Well, they're probably going to come right out and ask a question, you understand? But you got you to just pay attention. You know, kids these days, there's a whole generation of kids that really don't have this sense of morality like we used to have. Like I say, they think that not recycling is like as bad as it gets. But, but pornography is rampant with this generation. They're obsessed with things like Facebook and Snapchat. Well, you know what the thing about Snapchat is? Is that the message, the picture, it goes away. But you know what? Everything in their world goes away. Their parents' marriage went away. All their friends, they, they go away. There's this incredible impermanence to everything in their lives. Which is why I think it's so amazing that this generation is obsessed with tattoos. Obsessed with tattoos. What is that obsession about? I mean, some of the tattoos are dumb. If I were going to get a tattoo, y'all want to see my tattoo? No, I'm kidding. Wouldn't that be be awesome and and awful? Um, If I were ever going to get one, I I would be tied up in knots over what I would get. I mean, how, I mean, what am I going to face this body with? Do you understand? that I'm going to look at till Jesus comes. I mean, you know, I'm going to put a mark on this body that's never going to go away. Do you really think I'm going to put Scooby-Doo? I mean, do you really think I'm going to put Betty Boop? You know, I, I, I mean, I would want to put something so awesome, so amazing, because it's going to last forever. Do you not understand that this obsession with tattoos is coming from a generation that's asking questions about permanence. Is there anything, is there anything that lasts? Is there anything about me that, that lasts? This obsession with tattoos is coming from a generation that's asking questions about eternity, about permanence. Can, can you not see that? They're not just trying to do it to make grandma upset to watch their parents' head explode. This is a spiritual longing for something that will not be erased because everything in their lives just disappears and dissolves like cotton candy. Understand? Pay attention to what people are obsessed with. Our culture is obsessed with pornography. Our culture is obsessed with pornography. Was it last month Pornhub, which is one of the largest internet uh, pornography sites? started giving out money to like a wildlife, uh, a, a wildlife preservation charity for all the new members it would sign up. Okay, that's so weird. It just makes my head want to explode. It's like, here's Pornhub, but look at all the good they're doing. They're helping wildlife. Ashley Madison, which is a website which allows or was allowing people to sign up and then find sexual partners that your spouse would never know about. It was was just a a website to help people cheat. They got hacked, and it looked like the names were going to be released. People went bananas. We have a culture obsessed with this hypersexual we have a culture that is obsessed with, with sexual perversions of every kind. What is that about? I, I know how as church people you respond to that, but if you never stop to ask, well, what is that about? What is the longing? Well, what is the emptiness? How lonely people must be. 
They're asking questions about human connection and, and, and what love is. You understand it? And, and they have no idea anymore, but Pornhub will never answer that question for you. You understand? We now live in a culture that is blowing up because people don't know which bathroom to use. Now, I know how you respond to that, but but do you ever just stop and understand that we live in a culture that asks a lot of questions about identity and belonging? And people are so so lost and people are so empty, their souls are, are, are so starved that they no longer know even at the most fundamental level who they are or what they are, that they don't even know male or female anymore. Now, I know you can write your congressman and you can, you can hold up signs and you can scream and yell, but do you not ever just look at people and, and have a heart that breaks for them? Never just look at our culture in all of its brokenness and insanity. You never just look at people and understand how desperately they need to know Jesus. Because if your heart doesn't break, I'm not talking about getting offended. I'm, I'm talking about really a heart that just breaks out of love for people out of anger for a devil who works so hard to destroy people. You never feel that burden? Because before, before Paul ever opened his mouth, his, his heart broke open. I, I'm just saying, before he started giving answers, he listened to questions, and then he started applying the gospel to the specific questions that people were asking. And Not everybody believed that day, but some did. Some did. And for Paul, there's always going to be tomorrow and the next day and the next day. Every day, he's going to tell somebody about Jesus, and nearly every day, somebody's going to listen. If you want to have what Paul had, then you need to do what Paul did. You need to tell somebody about Jesus from a heart that breaks open for him from a heart that listens for the actual questions and needs that they're expressing. Our culture is asking a lot of spiritual questions right now. The problem is, you and me, because we don't say anything, they assume we don't have any answers. We have the answer. His name is Jesus. Pray with me. Oh, Lord Jesus, the world is so lost. The world is so empty. The world is so spiritually bankrupt, and they don't know it. Lord, sometimes there is this boredom that nearly overwhelms people. Lord, sometimes there is this feeling of emptiness, this feeling of loneliness and isolation, this deep, deep hunger for human connection, Lord. Sometimes, Lord, there is just this giant question mark that stands before a person's life. They don't know what they are. They don't know who they are. And they have no one who can give them an answer. 
Lord, the answer is you. Oh, oh, Jesus, the answer is you. You alone can tell a young man that he is a young man created in your image. You and you alone can tell a young woman that she is beautiful and to be cherished and treasured regardless of how she looks because she's created in your image. You and you alone can take people who feel so alone and isolated and out of control and ashamed and make them to be connected like family. You and you alone can draw strangers together to build a new community. You and you alone can deliver us from the misery that is often the human life. You and you alone can give answers to the questions that our heart asks but that our mouth can't even find words for. You, O oh Christ, are the answer. You, O oh Christ, are the medicine for our sick culture. You, O Christ, are the reason that we live and you are the mission that we live. Forgive us, Lord Jesus, for not caring about our neighbors, for not even knowing their names. Forgive us, Lord Jesus, for not even listening to our children, not even looking in the eyes of our own grandchildren. Lord, forgive us, Lord, because we are as guilty of the sins of our nation as, as everybody else, Lord. We claim that Jesus has made a difference, but our lives bear no difference. So Jesus, break our hearts. Pain our spirits, Lord, that we might look out and see our neighbors and, and have a heart that loves and a heart that longs to see their lives made whole. It's not about bringing people to church. It's bringing people to you, oh, oh Jesus, but we've forgotten. We've, we've invited them to church, but we've never told them about a great Savior. We've never lived a life in front of them that, that would make them want to know more about who this Jesus is. They know we go to Woodburn Baptist Church, but they don't know that we know you, Jesus. There's something wrong. Help us. Help us, Lord, that we could live lives that point people to, to, to Jesus, that, that we would have words when sometimes we don't feel like we have words, Lord, that we would just be able to say something, something that would answer the deep longing in the hearts of our neighbor. Oh, Lord, the world needs you. The world needs the gospel. The world needs Jesus. And we are sent out to tell the world about Jesus, but we're not telling it. Break our hearts. Change our lives. Loosen our tongues that the world may know that we know a great Savior. We pray these things in Jesus' name, but for the sake of the world, amen. Stand together. The altar's open if you wish to come and pray. Your prayer today is that God would just simply break your heart, open your eyes, open your ears so that you can see the needs of people around you and begin to really care, care enough to uh, want to share Jesus with them. I'm at the front if you have a public decision to make. I don't know exactly what the Lord is saying to you, but you know. So listen and obey even as we sing now, please. Mm -hmm.